Good morning, church. What a joy it is to be together with you. Uh, for those who are new, maybe don't know, my name is Marwan, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And it's always a joy to be together uh, in, in the house of the Lord among the people of God. Uh, but it's an especially exciting Sunday when we start a new book of the Bible. And so in light of that, I, I want to start off with a bit of a survey, uh, and your participation is encouraged. Uh, otherwise, it'll, it'll be very strange for me just to be asking questions and no one is, is participating. I'm going to join along and raise my hand also. So if you have ever sat under the preaching of an entire book of the Bible, raise your hand. Okay, so if, if you've been with us for a few months, that your hand should be up uh, because we recently finished the book of James uh, and before that we finished uh, the book of Galatians. Okay, hands down. Raise your hand if you've ever sat under a preaching of a book, not just a sermon from the Old Testament, but an entire book of the Bible from the Old Testament. Raise your hand. Uh, if you missed a Sunday or two, that's okay. I'm not, not going to look at your attendance record. But okay. Uh, again, if, if you were with us a couple of years ago, we preached as a church through the book of Exodus. That's the most recent one. Okay. Less than just any book of the Bible, which makes sense. Um, preaching through a book in, in general is, is not very common in churches, but let alone the Old Testament. Okay, a bit more specific. Who has sat through a teaching through one of the minor prophets? Raise your hand. Okay, so a lot less. Um, the book of Zephaniah. Who has sat under a preaching of the book of Zephaniah? I'll put my hand down too. Okay. Two, three maybe. Uh, this feels almost like a joke. I don't know if, if you've heard it on an airplane where a flight attendant would say, today is a special day for someone on this plane. It's their first time flying our pilot. And then everyone's like, wait, what? The, our pilot's first time in a plane, right? And so this kind of feels the same way. It's my first time preaching through the book of Zephaniah. Uh, but by God's grace, we won't crash. And so we'll be okay. Uh, with that, uh, I am all the more excited to be going through the book of Zephaniah together. A new book uh, new for almost everyone here uh, to, to sit under the preaching of a book. And so let's begin, as we would with any book that's new to us, uh, a brief background and introduction. So Zephaniah is in a group of 12 books that are commonly referred to as the minor prophets. Uh, they make up the last 12 books of the Old Testament. So starting with Hosea, Joel, Amos, all the way to Malachi, that section, that grouping of books is known as the minor prophets. Now, minor prophets makes them sound like they're lesser than the major prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, but, but of course they're not. They're shorter in length, fewer words. That's why they're referred to as minor prophets. Now, they're loosely put in chronological order, and they date from the mid-700 B.C. to the mid-400 B.C., so about 300 years cover the period of the minor prophets prophets. And for those who are familiar with kind of the history of God's people, this covers the period of time of both Israel and Judah before the exile, right, pre-exilic, all the way to after the exile. So that kind of gives us a chronology and a point in history where this takes place. Now, if you were to read through the 12 minor prophets, you will see recurring themes and, and, and similar phrases being used. And the reason is because they all speak with one voice, as one voice, the voice of God. That's what a prophet is, right? One who represents God to the people and speaks the message of God to the people. 
And friends, that's why it's understood that the pastoral ministry is a prophetic ministry. Not in the same way as the Old Testament. There are some pastors who refer to themselves as a prophet, right? On the website, Prophet Anwar Sawaya. Or who, he doesn't refer to himself as a prophet, right? But there's a special parking space or whatever it might be. So, so it's, it's not a prophet in the way the Old Testament is. Not that the pastors represent the people before God, right? We know the scriptures declare that we have one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prophetic role in that the pastor and the preacher speaks the words of God. Not just anytime they speak, but when they deliver God's word from the word of God. And so that's why anyone who preaches from this pulpit will labor hard to understand what the scripture says and will labor hard to present it to you, not just as information or or a lecture, but as life, as truth, as application. So pray for your pastors. Pray Anytime you sit under the preaching of God's word. Back to the minor prophets. Uh, generally speaking, each book individually can be broken up into three sections. There's a warning to God's people, followed by a message of destruction, and then a message of restoration. But we'll see that in Zephaniah. Now, let me tell you what to expect for the next five weeks. We'll be in the book of Zephaniah for five weeks, including today. Uh, and, and today I'm going to preach through the entire book of Zephaniah. It's only three chapters, so don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. Uh, it's, it's not going to be a six-hour sermon or whatever length it might be. I don't know how long it'll be. Uh, but it's good for us to understand the book as a whole and to see the main point of Zephaniah. And then for the following four weeks, we'll zoom in into specific verses and, and, uh, and, and topics as, as we dig deeper into some of the themes that the prophet Zephaniah brings up. So next week, we'll take a, look, uh, a closer look at the seriousness of sin and the wrath of God. Week three, uh, we'll go to the end of chapter three and we'll consider together the remnant and the return of God's people. Who are the promises of God for? Who are the people of God? Where does historic Israel and present-day Israel fit into that? And we'll close the series with two sermons from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Week 4, the God who dwells with his people. And week 5, the God who delights in his people. So with that brief overview and intro, uh, let me invite you to join me in prayer as we go to God's word. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you have made yourself known to us through your word. And not just that you've made yourself known to us, but that you have provided your words so freely to us that we can go to you to discover who you are to seek after you and know that you will be found because you are faithful to us and so father this morning we pray as we begin this new book this new series father give us ears to hear your voice give us eyes to see christ or do the work that only you can do We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So as we work through the book of Zephaniah, what we'll see is an overarching theme of salvation through judgment. And so our series uh, is titled, The God of Justice and Joy. 
But those words are, are hard to reconcile, aren't they? How can judgment lead to salvation? How are justice and joy connected? God's wrath and, and God's love. And so one of my prayers is that we'll be able to see some of the purposes and the characteristics of God as we work through this book. And today, especially, I'll point them out as we, as we consider a teaching, an attribute of God, what it reveals about Him. I'll say this, this shows God's love, or God's mercy. And as we work through the book, we'll see that the justice of God is the joy of His people. If you're taking notes, that'll be our main point this morning. The justice of God is the joy of his people. Look with me to Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, we don't know much about all the other minor prophets, but, but here we have a, a brief genealogy, right? We see Zephaniah's lineage here. Now, mo- most of these names shouldn't mean anything to you, but Hezekiah might stand out. And that's because Hezekiah was a king over God's people, a good king. And under Hezekiah's rule, God brought his people back from idol worship and from other sins to worship the one and the true God. And so that tells us, if Zephaniah is connected to Hezekiah, is that he comes from royalty. Now, why would he bring that up? I think it's similar to the way that Paul often opens up his letters. right? He identifies himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not bragging. It's, it's, it's giving his status. It's, it's laying out his credentials. And, and I think part of it is, both for Paul and for Zephaniah, is that he points out that he, too, is one of God's people. It, it's almost as if Zephaniah is saying, I'm going to say some really hard things, but I'm with you, and I'm for you. We are together, the people of God. And so don't hear me saying these things as an outsider, but as a fellow member of this family. Look with me to Verses 2 through 6. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah And against all the residents of Jerusalem, I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. The names of the pagan priests along with the priests. Those who bow in worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky. Those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. And those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is a really incredible declaration, isn't it? Such destruction is foretold. Now, this this sounds, and there is a sort of reversal of the order of creation, a deconstructing of what God has made. And maybe we can even remember together the stories of Noah's flood or the plagues 
of Moses in the book of Exodus, right? A sort of undoing the good creation of God. And, and there's two things that we can say about the nature and the character of God. God is sovereign. God is holy. Now, for us to see the sovereignty of God, we need to understand something about Hebrew prophecy. I'm not sure what's going on. I think it's time to trim my beard. Um, I don't want to. I get cold in the winter. And so I, anyhow. Um, but we'll just hope that that won't be too much of a distraction. We need to understand something about Hebrew prophecy. You see, prophecy in the Old Testament has both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And usually the farther fulfillment is deeper and fuller. For example, the destruction that we just read about uh, came to pass in the current context. Within a few decades of Zephaniah's prophecy, the Babylonians came through and did all the things that were foretold. It, it happened. The, the prophecies were fulfilled. But this prophecy also speaks to a future and to a final judgment. Now, when we say that God is sovereign, what we're saying is that He has complete control. There is nothing that can interfere with His plans or, or His works. It's like the psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He can direct nations and, and world events, and He can also just allow things to unfold and to happen. And so when he says something, we can be sure that it will happen because he is the one who will bring it to pass. Now, there can be a, uh, certainly a sense of terror as we think of the judgment of God because he will do what he says he will do. But there's also an overwhelming sense of peace because the promises and the goodness of God are never failing. Now the question is, who should fear and who should rest? We'll get there soon. God isn't only sovereign, but it's also important for us to see that God is holy. This isn't destruction just for the sake of destruction. God isn't being petty or doing this for retribution. No, God is holy, and so this is a just judgment for his people's sin. Now, we're going to look at that a lot closer next week as we consider the seriousness of sin and the, and the wrath of God. But we considered here, just briefly, that, that God's people looked nothing like God. Their actions, their beliefs, their, their disbelief in God and their belief in God and also other gods and the way that they lived amongst one another and amongst the people uh, outside of, of themselves, the surrounding nations, their actions made them unrecognizable as God's people. Right? They're called to be holy, as set-apart people. God set them apart. They're not living that way. And so because God is holy, He will bring judgment. The destruction that came to His people by the hands of the Babylonians was ordered by God as judgment. This wasn't just, it didn't just happen. Right? God is sovereign in, in controlling all things. Let's keep reading. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced. All those 
loaded with silver will be cut off. We're told that there will be wailing and crying out on that day. There is a day of judgment. Let's keep reading verses 14 through chapter 2, verse 3. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete Yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who carry out what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. There's a sense of heaviness, isn't it? That's why often people didn't like the prophets of God. Or they didn't come along and say, hey, everyone, you're doing so good. I mean, every once in a while. But no, they... You know, I think what's important for us to understand is the message of God, the message of the Bible has always been the same. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Let me, let me say a couple of things here. There is a day of judgment coming because the peoples have sinned against God. It's a judgment against sin that will end in destruction. And I, and I want to ask and I need to ask, do you believe that? Do you believe that God will judge you one day? Now, I ask because that's something I forget about. I don't often think about God's judgment, especially in times of falling into sin or doubt. But I also ask because the people at that time didn't believe it. Right? We'll look at this next week, but they were apathetic. They didn't believe that God would do either good or bad. They just thought he was inactive. He was too far away from them, too far removed from him to care or to do anything. Many then, just like many now in our time, didn't believe that God was real. Friends, this is a deep and terrible sin that we all struggle with, not believing God at his word. And it's the root of the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. What was it that Eve was tempted with? It wasn't lusting after something delicious. It wasn't a sense of pride. It was disbelief. Right? Satan asked, did God really say that? Then Eve questioned God's word. 
Friends, there is a judgment coming, and everything, as we know it, will turn to nothing. And it's so important for us to remember this. All the things that we strive after, all the things that get us stressed and we stress over because we don't have, will turn to nothing. Our possessions, our collections, our clothing, our money. I think most of us would say that we don't care that much about those things. At least not in comparison to our eternal inheritance. But if we're honest, when we have little, when the problems are many, our anxiety and our fear grows. And yet when we have much, there is a sense of peace and stability, isn't there? Even now, if, if I were to ask you to think about what you need to have a bit more peace in your life, something material or earthly will likely come to mind. New tires. More money. Different job. And please, don't, don't get me wrong, these are important things. These are necessary things for us to live in this world, but it's good for us to notice where our minds and our hearts go first. And so we need to remind each other, brother, sister, don't put your hope in the things of this world because none of it will last. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Now we hear the warning and the message of destruction, but there is something surprising in those first few verses of chapter 2. God says, Come to me. Listen again to verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. Before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. He's the one who's bringing this judgment and destruction. Why would anyone turn to him? because he's the only one who can save. Think about it. Because God is sovereign, none of his plans can be frustrated or or thwarted. No one can, can stop what God is doing. He can be stopped by no one, which means that if there's any salvation, it has to come from him. He alone can save. And there's so much that we can say here. But let me just point out a few things about God from these verses. God is mercy. God is grace. God is just. God is love. More destruction. Let's keep reading. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4 through verse 15. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast, nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until there is no one left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon. For the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. 
I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. Verse 9, Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nations will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations will, blow, will bow in worship to him, each in its own place. Verse 12. You Cushites, speaking of Ethiopians, will also be slain by my sword. He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as a desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it and every kind of wild animal, both eagles, both eagle owls and herons will roost in the capital of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window. But devastation will be on the threshold, for he will expose the cedar work. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. So Zephaniah is now pointing to the nations that surround Jerusalem. And what we see here is that there will be no one who escapes the judgment of God. Because ultimately, all sin comes against God. But if you're part of the community group this past week, we talked about that, didn't we? As we considered what is true repentance. And one of the things that we considered about true repentance is that true repentance is oriented towards God and not ourselves. We don't feel bad because we feel bad. But we recognize that we have sinned not only maybe against someone else, but ultimately against God. Because God alone is holy. And God alone is judge. And what we need to know is that whether someone knows God or not, God is still God. Right? He is the judge of all. As we consider and read in the New Testament, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. And so this judgment, this declaration of God's destruction, not only goes out to the nations that surround Jerusalem, but also turns back towards Jerusalem herself. Right, we won't read the, the rest of it, but it goes through verse 8. Now, I know how this sounds. And I know that God's anger may feel heavy and, and feel strange. But this message of judgment isn't new. God's people heard this message throughout the history of their prophets. And, and as one pastor said it, there is no doubt the most ferocious prophet of God's judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's important for us to hear because I know there is a temptation to say that the God of the Old Testament can't be Jesus. There was something wrong with God several centuries ago or several centuries before Jesus, but that's, that's not God. It's because we have difficulty reconciling these concepts. That's why it's good for us to consider them together. You see, people will split the Father and the Son, but they are one. We heard one of the many warnings when Ahmad read it this morning uh, of judgment by Jesus, right, during the scripture reading. Jesus spoke about hell and judgment more than any other prophet. And that's because the, the message has always been the same. Repent of your wickedness, of your ways, and believe. Repent and believe. Friends, God is holy. He must come against sin, and he will come against sin, but we need to remember that it's purposeful. Right? It's a message of justice and joy, right? salvation through judgment. And, and we'll start to see that in the coming verses uh, as we get into this message of restoration. Look with me to uh, chapter 3, verse 9. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. And serve him with a single purpose. For I will then restore. It's important for us to have some default positions toward God. Uh, and, and one of those is that we will never fully grasp the ways of God. It's, it's important that we humble ourselves and, and, and believe that truth. Right? Humble ourselves to that truth, and yet there is much that he reveals to us about himself. So we're not going to understand everything, but let's see capture the things that God has made known to us. And, and, and what we see here is this, this is a work of purification. It's a refining work. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 13. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. On that day, you'll not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Actually, let's, let's just finish up the rest of the chapter in the book, and then I'll, we'll close with a few words. Verse 14. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute 
from you and reproach on her. Yes, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. Friends, again, we want to think of near fulfillment and far fulfillment. And what we see here, this is a view of the final end. And in the end, God's people will be saved. God will judge our sins, not because He's hard, but because He's right, because He's good. Now, remember how I described this destruction as a sort of decreation, right? Like an undoing of God's good creation, right? Similar to the plagues and to the flood. It's, it's the same in those stories too. In the story of Noah, God's wrath came down both to judge but also to save. Right? Noah and his family were saved through God's judgment. We can look at the, at the great exodus of God's people. Again, another story of salvation through judgment. It's, it's a picture of life through death. And we're familiar with that, aren't we? We can see it as in, in nature, as the death of one animal gives life to another. Right, we, we can hear it and see it in agriculture, and as the Bible refers uh, to a grain of wheat, right? A grain of wheat must fall to the earth and die in order to bear more fruit. We see it in the seasons, how trees and plants go through the death of winter, then life comes up in the spring. There are even studies that show how a woman's life is shortened from bearing and birthing a child. Right? Through her body dying in some ways, life is born. And of course, we ultimately see it in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen again to verse 11. God says, I will not put you to shame for all that you have done against me. Friends, the only way for this to happen is through Jesus. You see, without justice and judgment for our sins, we would stand condemned. Friends, we do stand condemned before God outside of Jesus. And yet there is joy because God's justice was satisfied as Jesus died on the cross. Now, I asked earlier who should rest and who should fear. Rest is available to those who believe in Jesus. You see, God's judgment has to be poured out. It has to come against sin because he is good and, and he is just and in his mercy and his love, who has he poured out his wrath on other than himself? He took the punishment, his own punishment upon himself for us. And so if your hope is in Christ, if you trust completely that his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection has satisfied God's wrath and has paid for your sins completely, 
Brother and sister, you can rest because God has already judged you in Jesus. And for those who don't believe, I say carefully and yet without stumbling so that you will hear the message of God. For those who don't believe, I want you to know that you stand guilty before God. You are under condemnation and there is a day of judgment coming. But when you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we can look forward to that day, the day that is coming, not with fear, but with eagerness, excitement, with delight, because our Savior is coming again for us. Look to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father God, we covered much this morning, and most of it was heavy and difficult, and maybe for some it's the first time we've considered these things, these judgment, this destruction. So Father, I pray that you, in this time, as you're faithful to do, that you would do a work that only you can do. Father, there are those who need to be convicted of sin. Father, do that. There are eyes who have not yet seen Jesus as Lord. Father, open eyes this morning. Father, there are many of us who you have saved, and yet we are still walking in semi-darkness. We still live with anxiety because our eyes aren't fixed on Christ. Father, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to live with joy and peace and courage because we believe your judgment is true and we rejoice that Christ has taken your wrath. Father, help us to balance these things that are very difficult to understand. And Lord, when we doubt, when we have trouble believing, Lord, help us to not doubt you, but to worship you and to look to you. Father, thank you for the salvation that comes through judgment. And not our own judgment, but judgment upon Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.